Last Lord's Day, as we were speaking about the Reformation and the gospel of the Reformation, we preached two separate messages that had to do with the doctrine of justification. Uh, More accurately, justification by faith alone. Now we use terms like justification and justified and justify and sometimes we can assume that people know exactly what we're talking about. And that's always a mistake that preachers can make, a pit that he can fall into, of assuming that everybody knows exactly what he's referring to when he uses certain terms. So I don't ever want to be someone who is, what's the word? When you sort of make it look as though people are dumb, I don't want to ever give that impression uh, that because I say this is what this means, sometimes people might say, well, of course I know what that means. But there may be some others who don't know what it means. And so it can be an assumption that's made by many preachers that everybody who's hearing the message knows exactly what is being referred to. So I certainly don't want to assume that at any time that everybody who hears knows exactly what is being talked about. Simply because we use plain English, still there may be words that are big words or theological words, and they have a certain definition, and you may not know what that definition is. So I want today to talk about the simple matter of what it means to be justified. What does it mean? When we talk about justification, we talk about being justified. What does that mean exactly? Well, we have in those messages that I just preached talked about the biblical doctrine of justification. We have noted several important points concerning it. Uh, I sought to give the meaning of it, and in doing that, I quoted the Shorter Catechism. There's a question there, which is question 33, which simply asks, what is justification? The answer, justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardoneth all our sins, and accepteth us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Now, there's a lot in that to unpack, but that is one of the best definitions of justification you will find anywhere. It is, of course, a legal term. It's a term of the courtroom. And really, To justify someone is the opposite of condemning someone. To justify someone is the act of a judge acquitting him of all legal charges. It's saying that he is no longer viewed as guilty under the law. Justification is to be reckoned or regarded or accounted as righteous. To be viewed as having rendered a full obedience to the law of God. That's what it means. When you are justified, you're forgiven for all of your sins, and you have the righteousness of the Lord Jesus imputed to your account, set against your name. 
so that all that he did is regarded by God as if you had done it. As I say, it's the opposite of being condemned by the law. When someone is guilty and liable to punishment, they're not justified, they're condemned. Now, there is a method of justification. It's not by human works. It's not by efforts of our own. But it is by free grace. And yet, it is not divine mercy or favor at the expense of justice. And that's a really important point. Because some people have this idea that when God saves people, he just forgets about sin. He just acts as though it didn't exist. He just doesn't have any regard to it and no regard to God's law. But that is not true. Because God always, and I mean always, punishes wrongdoing. He always punishes lawbreaking. He always punishes sin. And he does so in one of two ways, either in the sinner himself, and that's why there's a hell, or in the sinner's substitute, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. It has to be one or other. But sin is always punished. It's either punished in the, in the sinner eternally, or it's punished in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how God deals with sin. He does not deal with it at the expense of justice. That's why the Bible says in Romans that he is just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. It also says that he is a just God. He is a just God and a Savior. In grace, you see, God has devised a way whereby he can uphold the demands of his law and at the same time exercise mercy toward guilty sinners. As one of the hymns puts it, in the gospel, we can say grace and justice here unite to endless days. Now, we talked last Lord's Day evening about a free justification because it is free. It's freely offered to sinners upon the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ in his holy life of obedience and his atoning death. We might call those the doing and the dying of Jesus. The doing of Jesus is his perfect upholding of God's law in his life. He lived a perfect life. That's the doing of Christ, his righteous life. And then there's the dying of Jesus when he suffered the penalty of the broken law. He suffered for our sins. The punishment that was due to our sins, he bore in his own body on the cross. And so by virtue of his holy life of obedience and his atoning death, the doing and dying of Jesus have merited eternal life for all those who will believe on him. That's the simple truth. So the basis, the ground, if you like, of justification is the work and the merit of Christ alone. One of our hymns says this, No works of merit now I plead, but Jesus take for all my need. No righteousness in me is found except upon redemption ground. Justification. 
Now, in justification, believers enjoy certain great mercies. And I mentioned the first one there in quoting that catechism answer. The first thing that the believer enjoys in his justification is a great pardon. A great pardon. His sins are pardoned. They're forgiven through Christ. Now turn with me to Romans chapter 4. We were there last Lord's Day when we talked about a free justification. Romans chapter 4. And we'll read from verse 6. And I mentioned during the Bible reading, when we were reading Psalm 32, that Paul quoted that psalm in the book of Romans. Well, here it is. Remembering, of course, that the English is translated from the Greek, so there will be a difference in the actual English compared to Psalm 32. The psalms were written originally in Hebrew, so there's going to be a difference in the English. Some people wonder why that is when the same verse is quoted, but it's quoted slightly differently. That's why. But then we read here, Romans chapter 4 from verse 6, even as David, and that's the psalmist, also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works. In other words, he reckons righteousness against his name without works, saying, and here we have the quote from Psalm 32, blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. What is sin? Sin is a breaking of God's law. Thou shalt, and we fail to do it. Thou shalt not, and we do it. That's sin. Breaking God's law. And therefore, as a sin, being against God, only he can forgive it. Only God can forgive sins. And he is a God who delights to forgive. A conference was just held in our Balamina congregation. And they chose out a hymn to sing each night as their conference hymn. Beautiful hymn in our hymn book. The chorus of that hymn goes like this. Who is a pardoning God like thee? Or who has grace so rich and free? What a question. Who is a pardoning God like thee? There is no God like our God who pardons sin. And we read this kind of thing spoken about in the book of Exodus in chapter 34 and verses 6 and 7 where the Lord passed by before Moses and proclaimed, verse 6, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty. See, this is one great blessing of justification identified in the catechism definition. It's pardon from all our sins. The commentator Matthew Henry said, with us, There is iniquity, and therefore it is well for us that with him there is forgiveness. And this is at the heart of justification. 
It includes pardon. The Apostle Paul and his colleagues preached this message everywhere they went. And in Acts chapter 13, we have a record of what Paul said in verses 38 and 39. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man, that's Christ, is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, all that believe are justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. So justification includes pardon. And notice carefully that forgiveness is through Christ. It's on the basis of his work, of his satisfaction rendered to the law of God. God pardons our sins because they are imputed to Christ. In other words, they're reckoned by God as if Christ had committed them. That's an amazing thing because our Lord Jesus Christ is perfect. He's without sin. The Bible says he had no sin, he knew no sin, and he did no sin. He once said, the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. In other words, nothing within me to which he can appeal by way of temptation. Our Lord Jesus Christ bore the punishment for our sins. Even though he was not personally liable for those sins, he became liable for those sins. They were imputed to him as our substitute. And therefore, because they were imputed to him, they were reckoned against his name. He bore the punishment for them. Therefore, they are not imputed to us. They're not counted as being our sins anymore. So therefore, God cannot punish us any longer for our sins. This is a wonderful doctrine. He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord will not impute sin. That's what it says there in Romans chapter 4. If you like, in Christ our sins are literally dismissed. They're sent away. They are forgiven. And that's really implicit in the term forgiven. It means to send away. That's what God has done with our sins. Our lawlessness, our iniquities are forgiven. But it also says there in Psalm 32, and quoted again in Romans 4, that our sins are covered. That means they're atoned for. In fact, the word that's used in the Hebrew of Psalm 32 is kafar. It is covered, atoned for. It's tantamount to saying that that sin is taken away or removed. It is actually hidden from God's view. And there are some wonderful scriptures that speak to that. He hath taken our sins from us. He has removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. It's because Jesus died in our place and paid the full penalty for our sins that God is able to justly forgive us. We receive a full and a free pardon. Why? Because Jesus took our sins upon him. Our guilt is no longer imputed to us. And therefore, they can no longer be justly condemned. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Believers 
are in a legal sense innocent. A divine pardon has been issued. It's as if a judge in the court with the sinner in the dock has announced his verdict. That sinner is pardoned. He's no longer condemned. He is justified because the penalty that he deserved for his law-breaking has already been inflicted on his substitute. And God will never deal with his people according to their sins. And it's not, it's not because they're not sins. And it's not because they don't deserve wrath, but because Christ has made satisfaction for their guilt. And he makes constant intercession to God for them. Romans eight thirty four. So there's a great pardon in our justification. In our justification, we also enjoy a great position. A new standing before God and his law. Our standing is righteous. Righteous. In other words, we have a perfect legal standing in God's court. And this is what the scripture speaks of here in verse 6. Romans chapter 4 and verse 6. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works. God will not impute sin against his name anymore. But you go back to Psalm 32, where this is originally spoken of. And what does it say there? Psalm 32 and verse 1. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. There's no longer any imputation of sin because God now accepteth him as righteous in his sight. Every believer can rejoice in the fact that we've not only been forgiven, pardoned, but we have received a perfect righteous standing before God. This is what 2 Corinthians 5.21 says. For he, God, hath made him, Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. In other words, that we might have a perfect righteous standing before God. And this is really important. You think about a criminal who receives a free pardon. That doesn't necessarily mean that he could be considered perfect or positively righteous before the law because he's just as much a criminal as before except that he has been pardoned. But in the gospel, God doesn't only pardon us as believing sinners. He looks upon us. He views us as those who are perfectly righteous in Christ. We have a title to everlasting life. We have a perfect standing Think about this. If God were merely to pardon your sins, but then leave you alone to maintain righteousness, you would be in serious trouble. But he has not only forgiven us, but we have an imputed righteousness. I'm repeating myself here deliberately. We have an imputed righteousness. And with But the Bible says, both Old and New Testament, we can have great confidence that God sees us not in our nakedness 
or in filthy garments, but in and through Christ's perfect righteousness. That is often spoken of in the Bible as a garment, the garment of righteousness or the robe of righteousness, that with, with which we are clothed. God sees us when we're justified, not in our nakedness, but in and through Christ's perfect righteousness. Therefore, think about this, nothing that we can do will make God love us any more or any less. Now, let's understand, this is not to encourage complacency in a believer. Oh, well, if I'm righteous and God has forgiven me, I can do whatever I want. No, a believer will never say that. A true Christian will never live like that. It's because of God's great love for us and the righteousness that he has given to us that we want to serve him. We love him because he first loved us. But it's very important that we understand that nothing we can do will make God love us any more. The devil wants you to concentrate on that and to think that if I just live a bit better, God will love me more. Or on the other hand, if I don't live as good as I could, God will love me less. But the love of God for his people is not flexible. It's not changeable. It doesn't change according to how they live. God's love for us is not performance-based. That's what I'm trying to say. It's not performance-based. The devil wants you to think it is. I've had a good day. I've done pretty well spiritually so I can pray in the prayer meeting tonight. But no, I've had a really bad day today. So I can't pray in the prayer meeting tonight. Isn't that how the devil argues with us? Isn't that what he makes us think? He wants us to depend on our own righteousness. See, by nature, all of us are wedded to works righteousness. We think we can do something to please God. That's why so many people are engaged in false religion. Do this, do that, do the other thing, and God will be pleased with you. But if you don't do this, that, and the other thing, God will not be pleased with you. So there's a scale, and you try to put as many good works as you can into this scale so that it will outweigh the other one. But that's false. Nothing I can do will make God love me any more than he does. Nothing that I do will make him love me any less than he does. Does that encourage licentiousness or loose living? Not at all. Paul dealt with that charge in the book of Romans. He said, because sin abounds, grace doth much more abound. Then he argues, well, because grace abounds, am I then going to sin? Shall we sin that grace may abound? God forbid. No, we're not going to argue like that. We're not going to live loose. We're not going to say, well, we'll live whatever way we want to because God will still love me. No. To know that I'm regarded by God as being as holy and as perfect as Jesus is in my standing before him, it will thrill my heart so much it will cause me to love him more and want to serve him better. That's what the gospel does to the believer's heart. So that when you do sin against the Lord, it smites your heart. You don't want to sin. You don't want to displease him. You want to live for him because of what he's done for you. What a wonderful garment every believer wears. The hymn writer said, This spotless robe 
the same appears. When ruined nature sinks in years, no age can change its glorious hue. The robe of Christ is ever new. Imputed righteousness. But there's one other thing that is enjoyed by those who are justified. This is what justification does. It gives to us a great peace. Psalm 32 verse 1 begins with this English word, blessed. You find it in verse 2 as well. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity. These are Old Testament beatitudes. If you read in the book of Matthew, in the chapter 5, there are a whole lot of beatitudes there. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, and so on. But here are two Old Testament beatitudes. Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity. Now what does that word blessed mean? You could translate it as, Oh, the happinesses of. Oh, the happinesses of he whose transgression is forgiven. There's great peace when you're justified. In the knowledge of your justification, there comes great peace. My late father used to like to give his testimony. And he used to sing as well in meetings. But every time he gave his testimony, he began the testimony by quoting Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The justified believer enjoys what the New Testament calls reconciliation. And there are various scriptures that speak to that, that God has provided to us reconciliation. The gospel we preach, according to 2 Corinthians 5, is a gospel of reconciliation. You know what reconciliation is, don't you? Sometimes a couple may be having trouble in their marriage, and they go to a counsellor. And it can also happen in the world of business, where there are those who have to be involved in reconciliation. Arbitration, it's called. And the, the both sides give their view of what's happening and then they try to get their heads together and they try to come up with a solution. And hopefully if things work out well for the marriage counsellor, the couple before him will be reconciled. They'll, they'll put away all that has been dividing them. They put that in the garbage bin of history and they move forward because they've been reconciled. And that's just a human illustration, but that's what God does for us. We're, we're not in fellowship with him. We are far from him. We pray to him, but our prayers hit the ceiling and come back because our sins have separated between us and him. So when that sin is removed, when the cause of the breach, if you like, is removed, there can be reconciliation. So before, when we were enemies unto God by wicked works, we're now reconciled to God by the death of his son. And when there's reconciliation, there's peace. And concerning this peace that results from justification, it's something that's real. Think about its reality. 
the enmity, the cause of the breach between God and us is removed. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. We are reconciled. The the term that's used in Ephesians chapter 2 is made nigh by the blood of Christ. Made nigh, brought near, because we were afar off. Once far from God and dead in sin, the hymn puts it. But then we're made nigh. We're brought near to him by the blood of Christ. And this is a fact. This is a reality which has been brought about by Christ's atoning work at Calvary. The the bar to communion, if you like, has been removed. The hindrance, the enmity between us and God, it's been removed. And as old Hodge said, justification secures peace, not merely because it includes pardon, but because that pardon is dispensed on the ground of a full satisfaction of God's justice. What satisfies the justice of God satisfies the conscience of the sinner. And that's illustrated in Noah's ark. Noah was told by God to pitch the ark inside and out with pitch, a tar-like substance, a waterproofing, if you like. So he painted this pitch on the outside of the wood of the ark But he also pitched the inside of the ark with the same pitch. What does that tell us? Well, that represents atonement. It represents a covering. And so when God looked down on the ark, what did he see? He saw the covering. He saw the pitch. That which represents atonement. When Noah and his family would look up to the inside of the ark, what did they see? They saw the same thing that God saw. The pitch covering the inside of the ark, that which speaks of atonement. So in the gospel, God looks upon the work of Christ and he's satisfied with it. That's why he raised him from the dead, to show that he was satisfied with his work. That's how we know he was satisfied with his work, in that he raised him from the dead. So the blood of Jesus satisfies God as a way of putting away sin. So what satisfies God should satisfy us. We look upon the blood and we know that that blood atones for our sins. In other words, what pleases God pleases the justified sinner. In our case, guilt had to be removed. The blood has done it. Our sin has been punished in Christ. There remains no sin to be atoned for because he's punished for it. So peace has been purchased by the blood of his cross. As one hymn puts it, peace is made twixt man and God. The reconciliation. This is the reality. We have peace with God. We have reconciliation with God. We are made right with God through the work of Christ. There's nothing now that comes between us. That's the reality. But then there's the realization of that. There's an objective reality, facts. What are the facts? Jesus has died and he's dealt with the reason for the separation and the breach. But that being the objective reality, the sinner needs to have a subjective experience of that reality. 
And this is where faith comes in. When I get saved, when I come to Christ, I receive peace within. The peace of God. By faith we receive that reconciliation and we come to enjoy that reconciliation, that peace in our personal experience. How do we do that? By just simply leaning upon the work of Christ. We're saying, Lord, this work of thy dear Son is the basis of my salvation. That's what I believe in. That's what I'm trusting in. Not what I do, but what he did. And that's our justification. And here's the enjoyment of our justification. Your joy and peace will only be real in Christ as you continue to reckon by faith upon the objective reality, the facts as they are. That's where we need to have our minds, on the facts. And isn't this our problem as Christians? In our daily experience, we fail to rest upon the reality. And so sometimes we think we're not saved at all. And sometimes it's because of how we feel. And there are times we come to pray and it's as if the Lord doesn't hear us. And we read our Bibles and we sort of feel like we're not getting anything out of it. And that's a test. And that's a trial that comes upon many a believer. Think about Job. He said, I go forward, he's not there. I go backward, he's not there. Oh, that I knew where I might find him. That I might come even to his seat. Have you ever been there? I have, many a time. And it's usually because I fail to rest upon the realities. See, faith is sometimes presented as a state of mind where we can convince ourselves or we can try to convince ourselves that something is really true. If I think long enough and hard enough about it, that'll help me to believe it. Some years ago, there was a charismatic preacher called Oral Roberts. And he used to speak a lot of oral nonsense. But anyway, I remember watching this event where he had a whole university uh, before him, all the students in that university. And he was talking to them about the assurance of salvation. And he said to all those kids that were there, just repeat after me. I know because I know. And all you heard was this raucous sound from the congregation. I know because I know. And I thought, what a load of nonsense. It could just as easily be, I think because I think. How do you know you're saved? Oh, well, I know because I know. Well, I hope you've got more than that to go on. That's like a self-help course. That's, you know, that is, that's mere psychology. That's a Joel Osteen stuff, psychology. I can convince myself and I can tell myself not to doubt salvation because I, I just know. Well, that's garbage, actually. You can have no assurance of your salvation by just merely telling yourself over and over again, I'm saved. Oh, I know, I know I'm saved. How do you know? How do you know? Because you feel good that day? Because there's a lot of days I don't feel good, so I must not be saved. I mean, sometimes they'll say to a person, well, you, you got out of bed the wrong side this morning, just because of the way they are. 
Well, if you're in that sort of frame of mind, you're not going to have an assurance of salvation if you think, well, I I know because I know. Because that particular day, I, I don't think I do know. There's no peace there. There's no assurance there. Certainly not an assurance that's lasting and true. And there's something else in connection with that I want to say to you. Sometimes preachers are approached by someone in, the, in their church and that person is doubting their salvation. You know what the preacher tells them? Oh, do you remember the night when we went, stayed behind after church and we went into the little room at the back and you prayed a prayer? Remember that? Oh, oh yes, I remember, I remember praying. Well, you're saved. Well, if that's what you're depending on, you're on thin ice. Because that's not going to give you assurance of salvation. Because you'll go out through the door and within five or ten minutes you'll think, oh, wait a minute, what if I didn't pray the right prayer? Uh, What if I didn't really repent properly? What if I didn't really believe properly? And then you're back to square one. And there's no assurance. So where do you get assurance? You get assurance by looking at the work of Christ. That's That's how you get assurance. Resting on the facts, whether you feel it or not. What are the facts? Christ died for our sins. That's a fact. The fact is that those who look to him will be saved. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Oh, but preacher, that's too simple. Well, that's why a lot of people trip over it, because it's too simple. It is simple. What must I do to be saved? Remember that question? The jailer is in real trouble. He's in tremendous emotional trouble, but he's also in trouble because if those prisoners get away, his head comes off. What must I do to be saved? What a question. Notice how Paul and Silas answered. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. Simple. Put your trust in Jesus. Look to Christ's work. If from sin you're longing to be free, look, look to the Lamb of God. That's it. Look to the Lamb of God. Look to the Lamb of God. For he alone is able to save you. Look to the Lamb of God. Don't look to the church. Don't look to the baptismal font or the tank. Don't look to communion. Don't look to the pastor, the priest, the prelate, the pope, the pastor. Look to Christ. That's how you're saved. And that's how you're assured of your salvation. By constantly looking to him. You know that great verse that we quote in John chapter 1? It says in verse 11, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power, which means the right or the privilege, to become the sons of God even to them that believe on his name. Now, in the Greek, the way that's constructed, it literally means, even to them that keep on believing on his name. We continue to believe. We continue to look to Christ, resting on the facts, whether we feel it or not. Resting upon the reality. That's what faith does. Some people will act as though and will speak as though faith is a leap in the dark. You know, you you just stand, close your eyes and then just jump out into the darkness and hope for the best. That's not faith. That's presumption. 
Because if you do that on a swimming pool that's been drained, you're in trouble. Your eyes are closed and you take a big jump, bang, you hit the cement and you're done for. No, faith doesn't stand upon nothing. Faith doesn't stand on fresh air. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. There's firm ground to stand on because your faith is in a real work that Christ has done and a real promise that God has given. You stand upon his word. That's solid ground. That's not a leap in the dark. That's not hoping for the best. What we're talking about in justification is being reconciled to God in your experience by placing all your hope and trust in the very real work of Christ. One of the Puritans, I forget which one it was, he said at the end of his life, he was going to gather up all his good works and he was going to gather up all his evil works and put them in a bundle and he was going to throw them overboard and float to heaven on the plank of free grace. See, your hope and trust must be in the work of Christ. Hodge again, the great Princeton theologian said, when we take our true place and feel our ill desert and we look upon pardoning mercy as a mere gratuity, we find access to God and his love is shed abroad in our hearts, producing that peace which passes all understanding. What satisfies God satisfies the conscience of the sinner. The convinced sinner never finds peace until he lays his burden of sin on the Lamb of God, until he apprehends that his sins have been punished in Christ. And this, friends, is the way of peace. This is a message for all of us, resting upon the reality of what Jesus has done for me. This is the way of peace. And we enjoy this in our justification. This is the blessedness that the psalmist is talking about. Oh, the happinesses of he whose sins are forgiven, whose sins are covered. It is found in the full trust in the objective reality. I am saved and I'm sure of it because I'm resting in his finished work. That's what gives me the assurance. What was it that saved the firstborn in Egypt? Was it the confidence of the Israelites? No, it was the blood. It was the blood that was painted on the lintel and the doorpost of the house. God did not say, notice it carefully, God did not say, when I see your confidence in the blood, I will pass over you. No, he said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. That's what God's looking to. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. This is the ground of our justification. This is the ground of our peace. May the Lord enable each and every one of us to rest for eternity on the work of Jesus.